1: Hello, I'm Stephen. and I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about the new immigration rules, the vanishing of public
2: spaces, and you ask us, what has the trans debate got to do with the Labour leadership election?
1: So the government has put forward its sort of first set of proposals about how immigration law will change on the thirty first of December when we formally leave the kind of institutions of the EU. We've obviously already left the political institutions but we're still in the kind of economic project until the thirty first of December. Which I guess the opening question is like, who round this table would have been able to come to this country? Hand <laughs> uh, un- under this regime, not
3: me. I wouldn't, oh,
1: be there. Well, you'd you'd be, wouldn't <laughs> yeah, you, you you're were born feel... in the UK. Yeah. God,
4: <laughs> sorry, that was that yeah, was the... D'Souza over here. Oh, sorry. maybe my mum wouldn't D'Souza, have yeah.
3: so. from the Republic of Ireland, common, yeah. To yeah. Northern common, Ireland. Common, common travel area. Okay, yeah, ignore me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I mean, no, I, I, hypothetically, I too, too, I did a migrant. <laughs> yeah,
4: I too am annoyed that I have no claim to. Specialness under these rules. So. so it's weird
1: because this shows that I'm deeply illiterate on this policy so I joke Because I knew that Alva had a. I was going to say surely Alva is the only person who would have a right to come here. But of course, I was
4: born. I, mean, I was born here. My parents were born here. But I
1: thought. I thought your parents were. You know.
4: Oh well, I mean, I'm a Southport separatist, so <laughs> I mean, technically my mum is not from England, but my dad, born to Irish parents in Royal Leamington Spa, I'm fine.
2: I wouldn't probably exist because my dad wouldn't have met the the new criteria that they want to introduce for. Everyone coming into the country now, so I probably wouldn't be here. He actually worked illegally when he first came. So perhaps he would have found a way (laughs) to to stay and hustle. Hustle, I don't know. I don't want to. I I, (laughs) I think you've got to back back
1: your father, right? I think he would have been been able to.
2: Yeah. So he basically, he was studying. So that would have been a route in uh, if he, but students still have to meet certain criteria under this new system, which he wouldn't have met. But Mm -hmm. um, while he was studying, he worked illegally in London's theatres as an usher. So he has seen like Uncle Vanya, 50 times and really knows a lot cool. of plays. But they used to insist on calling him Don because they couldn't say his real name, which was Duran. So he used to still answer to Don, like, 50 years later.
1: <laughs> so, because I realised, as we were talking about then, actually my family has weirdly lost their free movement right to come here twice in the my great-great-great-whatever grandfather who came here from Lithuania came here in that wave of Jewish immigration before the first Passport Act, essentially. So he then lost his right to free movement afterwards and then now Lithuania is a member of the EU, so briefly would have had his right to come here. I think my grandmother, how would have been fine because I think she would have been able to come here citing the realistic risk that she was not safe from prosecution by staying in apartheid South Africa while planning to continue, you know, opposing the government and giving birth to a mixed-race child. So 50% of me would still be presenting this podcast.
2: Okay. Mm. Um, So was she here as a refugee? uh, I
1: don't think she was I think she just came here as a Commonwealth citizen but I think she would under this criteria be able to come as a refugee but this is all a kind of, you know, Mm. an interesting way of having our way into the rules which essentially what they do is they lower the salary threshold to 25k they move us to a points based immigration system where you need 70 points To make the Champions League, sorry, seventy points to be able to to apply to come here. Yeah, I mean they're a bit of a mess.
3: So my impression is that this is a sort of entirely cosmetic, or this is like this is sort of message driven, and it will be like completely impractical in practice, as with most immigration policy. As with everything the Home Office does. So I mean, because we used to have an employer-driven system which had, you know, a supposed cap on it, which they never met. And, you know, that was sort of intended to decrease immigration levels, and it didn't. So I'm I'm wondering if this is exactly the same thing. It's for the comms element of sort of throwing a bone to certain people to look like you're being incredibly tough on low-skilled immigration, but it won't work.
2: Yeah, I think they've been really clever on the comms, because if you look Mm. at all the polling... On public attitudes towards immigration, people mm. are generally very positive to the idea of talented, in inverted commas, or high skilled, in inverted commas, because these things are quite arbitrary for people coming into the country. People aren't against that. So it's in the mm. government's interest to talk up the idea that they're only letting higher skilled, talented people in. So I think that that element has been clever. And also, as Stephen wrote in his morning call this morning... There is a shortage occupation list, which is decided by the Migration Advisory Committee, which is independent from the government. So Mm. if there aren't enough people to fulfil certain jobs that people have been worried about today, there is a way of sort of, (laughs) you know, trickery and, and tweaking, which means that they can move those kind of jobs onto the list of what counts as a skilled worker. So that they can make up that for those shortages, i.e., you can have a lower salary threshold and you get higher points if you're applying for jobs in that sector. So there is a way that they can make up for those for those industries that would that would be losing out. Nevertheless, the Tory mm. manifesto said that they want to bring overall numbers down. How committed yeah. are they actually actually are to doing that? And also, there are lots of industries that require loads of low-skills workers, like hospitality and care and the NHS where they are genuinely really worried, despite the things that can happen behind the scenes to make up the numbers of those workers, about what's going to happen in the immediate term. So I've spoken to immigration Mm. lawyers that are just inundated now because of people who are either so worried about being able to stay here in their jobs or businesses that rely on those kind of jobs and how they're going to be able to stay in business. I think although the comms has been quite clever and perhaps there is an element to it where it's where it's not as simple as it seems mm. there is still genuine worry about what this can will do to the economy mm.
4: but i wonder though if as we have seen since the brexit vote migration has become a much lower salience issue and because the messaging of this is hello we're the new tory government we've done brexit and we're doing the things you always wanted on migration if it does have negative impact a negative impact economically will anybody care or notice will it just become a you know a niche well people will notice the negative economic impact. sorry but will, will they necessarily draw the line between the two
1: well no i mean i think so because the interesting kind of i think Albert's question is exactly the thing that we know that we don't know right that, the thing in and a points-based immigration system mm-hmm. is good at is winning consent for large amounts of immigration. Australia has higher net migration than the UK. And although there is political opposition towards refugees, there is broad political acceptance of continuing high migration. Because despite the fact that in many ways, this is slightly odd from a kind of outcomes perspective, people are weirdly intensely relaxed about the fact that the Australian government goes, This year, being a hairdresser is skilled. Last year, it was unskilled.
0: um, Mm, And therefore,
1: having uncontrolled, in Mm. inverted commas, Mm. migration by hairdressers for one year, then stopping it for another year, then bringing it back for another year. So I think if this is actually aware, I think a points-based immigration system is a brilliant way of of getting people to vote for a government that actually continues to have immigration at a high level. Mm. In terms of managing having, actually lowering immigration, it's almost disastrously bad because... This has implications for everything from the care industry to orchestras to, yeah, there are lots and lots of kind of structural problems with it. But I, as with you, don't know whether or not that is a substantial kind of issue because, I mean, it does kind of speak to what feels to me the big question that Tory MPs have been asking me this week. Because obviously one of the consequences of the reshuffle is, particularly if you are a man from the 2015 intake, if you're not in the government already, you you're, are... You're screwed. Well, yeah, and they do really... Well, They maybe they're not, but they strongly believe that they are. Well, and,
4: for instance, the mere mention of this name will bring some listeners to this podcast now in titters, which is something I could rant about for about five minutes, but I won't. Just to pluck an example out of thin air, Alan Mack, government loyalist, has served as a PPS loyally for about two years still not in the government when, you know, members of the twenty seventeen intake are now fully fledged ministers. So if you are
1: you know someone in the Alan Matt mould who's not yet in the government, yeah, you, you do at that point start to so there are a couple of reasons why ministers are, MPs are going a bit like, I don't know what the plan is. One is, yeah, people in the twenty fifteen intake are just like, I have asked so many supportive questions. I've done radio when when, you know, Boris has been a L B C at three in the morning. Know, yeah. Grilling a baby <laughs> and what am I getting for my trouble? I might as well just say what I really think. But one of the things the the sort of the locuses of that type of unease is do the numbers on this economic project add up at all? And the thing we don't know is, yeah, if the government is serious about actually ending low-skilled immigration and actually plans to keep this quite rigid threshold, which I doubt. For one thing, I think if this wasn't a system planned to have holes in it, then it wouldn't be a scale of 1 to 70. Mm. Because it's basically like you can get 70 points, but there are essentially only like 12 ways you can get points. So you don't need 70 points for that scheme unless Mm. you're planning in a couple of months to be like, by the way, uh, if you're a care worker, then that's... uh, 15 points, Uh, yeah. (laughs) You
2: can already see it happening. If you read the latest Mac report, they recommend reclassifying different types of professions into skilled and unskilled. So you can see how that could just happen Mm. each each year. Mm. So it's like advising carpenters and painter decorators to go on the skilled list and waiters and waitresses to come off it, for example. I
3: mean, the word for it is cynical, really, isn't it? I mean, you're so right to remind people that an Australian points based system in australia that works to increase levels of migration because that's a migration-led economy and that idea has has developed salience in the uk for for really bad reasons that are like have that bear no relation to reality people think an australian points-based system is a good thing because it sounds really tough and unfortunately they associate australia with being horrible to Refugees who you know who who weren't yeah, scheduled yeah, yeah. to arrive when that has nothing to yeah. do with their points-based system and in other ways they're they're better at re- welcoming refugees, just not people who arrive in boats. But I really feel like it's it's a totally cynical move to just move from one model of immigration to another when you know whether it's employer-led or points-driven. I mean th- that's kind of neutral. It's about the caps you set within it and the and the specific hoops that people have to jump through. Moving from one to the other seems like a, just a very cynical PR move, doesn't it? I think. I- I don't know if I agree mm, with that, because I yeah. think it,
2: we don't know what's going to happen. So we don't know yeah. whether like the Tory party is going to be Priti Patel's Tory party or the Tory party is going to be the old Boris Johnson's Tory party in terms of immigration, right? So mm. it could either be really cynical or it could be just a very clever way of disguising the fact that we are going to be able to meet the skills shortages in, in this country. Well, that is mm. the unforeseen... That's, that's my optimistic... Yeah. One of the
4: unforeseen corollaries of taking back control on migration that... Sat very uneasily with the idea of seventy-five million Turks all coming here at once in twenty sixteen was actually the fact that this could well result in higher net migration, and that's something the that the sovereigntists among the Brexit
1: movements, rather than the nativists, will say. Mm. Brilliant! I mean, we're we're in control of it. Well, that's all that matters. Because yeah. one of the many yeah kind of slightly odd things about the Tory is that the Tory manifesto both holds that immigration numbers will go down and that we haven't employment miracle and are at or near full employment <laughs> and you're just like well you're allowed to believe one of those yeah. two things however both of them can't coexist I think I basically think I'm probably somewhere roughly equidistant between the two of you and then I agree with you Anoush and I sort of think that actually the central point of a points-based immigration system as not just Boris Johnson, but Dom Cummings, but... So basically, everyone who is around that Downing Street has always said, well, look, when you have control, we can then be more liberal on t- in terms of the level. But I agree mm-hmm. with Alvin. I think that is actually deeply cynical because it is basically like... It's a coded way of saying to people, because people hear it and they think, oh, Australia, that means white, and that means putting a bunch of people in like a camp somewhere, yeah. even though that actually isn't remotely accurate to what Australia's immigration <laughs> system is actually like. And I think it stores up problems for the same reason than New Labour being like, well, we like free movement privately, but don't worry, we're going to go on about how awful we're making life for asylum seekers. Then it feels almost to me like, Either this is a plan for economic disaster or it's yet another attempt to get the level of immigration that politicians want without having to explicitly get active consent from the public for those levels of Mm. migration
2: yeah yeah I think it's I think you're definitely right I do agree that signaling to the electorate that immigration is bad which is what the Tory manifesto was doing is a bad thing because that stokes Mm. dangerous scenarios for people who are either visibly non-white British or people who have who have come here recently so I do agree that that's a bad thing and actually I had a real taste of that when I went to the Brexit party uh, in Parliament Square on the night of the 31st of January where Tim Martin of Weatherspoons um, got up oh, to do his yeah. speech and he gave an actually really good conciliatory speech where he was saying, you know, this is for all of the hardworking sort of European workers who, who are here and are welcome to stay here and have contributed to our economy. And there was, you know, almost not a peep from the crowd. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. And I know that that crowd wasn't representative of the vast majority of Brexiteers, but it was sort of a summary of what happens when you sort of Tell voters one thing about something and then try and rectify it afterwards mm. once you've won your political goals. Yeah,
4: because like woke Tim Martin's Euroscepticism is the Euroscepticism of it's the old school sort yeah. of Benite democratic case rather than you know the leave.eu case. But as, as you, you can't used to use say about Douglas Carswell on this very podcast, yeah, yeah. Yeah. just because you are a Brexiteer and a UKIPer who who likes libertarian politics doesn't mean that's what people like or are voting for, Doug. Yeah.
1: Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And this question is from Paul, which is why the Labour leadership candidates rang about trans issues.
3: Right, so I think that, I mean, the crucial thing is that Labour leadership candidates aren't arguing about trans issues. I mean, they're in basically complete agreement. It's that hustings and journalists have imposed a faux argument on them basically but the root of it is that the Labour Campaign for Trans Rights set out a list of 12 pledges that it wanted all of the Labour Party's members to sign up to as well as the party's MPs and leadership candidates and Lisa Nandy signed up Emily Thornbury said that she didn't on Newsnight while her Twitter account said that she had I think people missed that but it was it was a a beautiful bit of political c- comms where she <laughs> <laughs> she was on two places at once, her team, you know, Emily Thornberry on Twitter saying, you know, I've signed up to this pledge while she on TV was saying, I haven't signed up to well, this. Well, demographically,
4: uh, Thornbury is the most likely of the four to disagree. To,
3: to disagree. And then, and then crucially... Keir Starmer hasn't signed up but has said that he's, you know, in broad support of trans rights and would be in broad agreement with the other candidates. But it was so controversial. What is the this, actual pledge, sorry? Yeah, so it's particularly controversial because of the ninth pledge which says you know, we pledge to organise and fight against transphobic organisations such as Women's Place UK, LGB Alliance and other n- trans exclusionist hate groups. So that's like quite a strongly worded condemnation of a group of Labour members who call themselves Women's Place and who controversially met at Labour conference this they would be skeptical of proposed GRA reforms mm-hmm. and they're like incredibly controversial within the Labour Party. But describing them as a hate group prompted a lot of questions about it from well, that was places Emily
1: in Thornberry's...
3: Big Great. Yeah, it. she was yeah. just like, you know,
1: I agree with all the other places, but I'm I have concerns about the use of the term hate group. I, mean, mm. I think as you say, it's one of those weird things where there's been a lot of kind of media commentary of the kind of like media asks question. Media then goes, Why are you talking about this quite mm. so much? Yeah. Um because so one of the reasons why we haven't written anything on it is because Essentially, from a, explaining the inner life of the Labour Party, it doesn't actually have a read-across to the inner life of the Labour Party. There's it's no literally
3: just the same trans debate as, as yeah. everywhere else. And yeah. there's no
1: factional yeah, dividing. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas,
4: to compare with another big social democratic party, my apologies to Jackson Carlaw in advance for what I'm about to say, but the SNP, yeah. actually, one, there's a much more vocal debate over trans rights in the SNP, or rather the legislative framework Trans people should identify within or be accepted legally within, whatever, and that does have a factional oh, yeah, across, right? Yeah. Because it's <coughs> it's you know to a large extent a proxy for the row over independent strategy
1: and Alex Salmon under another name. Yeah, no, exactly. Like that's the thing is that a Conservative MP. I had this terrifying experience yesterday when I was doing my column, which I often do from home, listening to music on my iPhone, and my phone starts ringing, and I put it on, and this booming voice, yeah, like coming from all around me through my speakers. Stephen, I'm just phoning to discuss this (laughs) with you. It's deeply terrifying. And they were just like, they pointed out that almost all of our output can actually be summed down to this row about X is actually about Y. And yeah, this is the row in the SNP is partially about the actual policy divide, but it is in many ways actually really about Alex Salmon and an independent strategy. Whereas, um, yeah, in some ways I think the question, yeah, as you say, is exactly wrong because the Labour Party is not rowing about it. You have... A choice of three candidates who essentially agree on all points because even the ones who have signed the pledges have criticized the ninth pledge
3: there is yeah have said that they wouldn't describe that group as a hit group yeah and then Keir Starmer who hasn't signed didn't sign it for that reason but not because he isn't in broad support of all the other things I think that this is just a recurring theme in coverage of the trans debate within the Labour Party there was a headline I'm not going to name the publication if they're listening they'll know who they are there was this headline saying you know Dawn Butler I can't remember it exactly but Dawn Butler sort of clashes with Lisa Andy over trans women in prisons and I read the piece and I just thought they're saying exactly the same thing and they're sort of Willfully misunderstanding what Lisa Nandy has said and Dawn Butler has said, they're in in complete agreement over all of these policy issues and willfully misunderstanding it in order to create a conflict where Lisa Nandy was asked about a particular case of a trans woman who had raped an underage girl and whether that person should have been in a women's prison. And Lisa and Andy said, Why well, I, I agree with the principle that trans people should be in the prison that is suited to their legally identified gender. And Dawn Butler was asked if she agreed, if that, if that person, that particular prisoner, I think she's called Zoe Linus, if that particular, basically, like, dangerous trans woman should have been in a women's prison. And she said, you know, that there are systems in place already, which is right, for the prison service to... Decide these issues on a case by case basis, but starting from a position of accepting trans women as their legal identified gender but the that things like that should never happen and it and it was misquoted as her saying that dangerous trans women should never be in women 's prisons. It was just completely misreported, and they haven 't taken the article down That's and it's, and it 's seen as a complete clash between the two of them when really this debate really is kind of confected by people who don't really understand the existing law and policy mm. around a lot of it Yeah, and it
4: does rather, this whole debate or rather the lack thereof mm. does rather give the lie to the to caricatures of Lisa Nandy and as a sort of hang em and flog em. the only way we win back the red wall is by as one tweeter said, being like Alf Garnett and then, some. Uh, Lisa and Andy had signed the had signed the pledge, of course. And then somebody tweeted, "Alf Garnett said trans rights," which was very funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it does you know, the, the extent to which there is no debate
1: over this does mm. tell us something about. Oh, I mean, it's one broadly the, about social attitudes in Britain as well. well I think mm. I think one of the many fascinating sort of things about this is the leadership election with the smallest amount of ideological real estate between the candidates, which was, by the way, true when Jess Phillips was still running. Yeah, it is a can a campaign in which a number of supporters of the various candidates have slightly embarrassed themselves by trying to kid them by k- successfully kidding themselves that there is one, right? Like because the flip side is I agree that it brings the light of the idea that Lisa Nandy is like, you know, a hangerman flogger and windrag. But it also does make it very hard to support the kind of sort of slight tone of if you don't pick this option the Labour Party will die and deserve mm-hmm. to from many of her kind of like outriders in academia where it's just like guys what what do you believe the difference between you and Keir Starmer is other than saying we need to be honest and then just saying the same things Keir does. But
4: also isn't isn't the lesson of Labour governments with big majorities that if you look at the social attitudes Sunder Katwala is worth following on Twitter for this very reason if you look at social attitudes and say 1995 or whatever the percentage of people who believe Gay relationships were always wrong between consenting adults is scarily high, and then after 13 years of Labour government, it you know melts that number melts away, and I I think that's because ultimately you know what was in the 80s was the loony left agenda. When you have a social democratic government with a big majority who normalises these things,
1: yeah, I think nobody cares. One of the really fascinating kind of artifacts of that, I was re-reading some of the diaries from the 97 period for other reasons and the conservative opposition got a lot of made a lot of hay about the fact that the partners of labour ministers so yeah people who weren't married but you know people's common law spouses as it were were being able to fly on allowances designed for wives right yeah like and this wasn't even a some of it was of course gay bashing but this wasn't even it was considered sufficiently arguable that a woman that someone had been married to for 20 years Male minister couldn't take them on a flight on the taxpayer dime. Now Boris Johnson can quite literally take his living mistress to meet the Queen, and thankfully and rightly, nobody nobody cares. Yeah, nobody cares, and and it's just really fascinating to me, like as a kind of a single kind of trend line. Yeah, no one cares.
2: I do think one way that this this confected trans route. Is playing into the leadership election. And uh, sorry Mm. if this is unfair, but I think that, you know, you've said Keir Starmer hasn't signed the pledge. I feel like if one of the women candidates hadn't signed it, but still said, oh, I agree with the sort of, Mm. you know, vibe of this pledge, but I've got trouble with some of the wording. I know they have said that, but they've signed up to it. He hasn't, but he kind of gets away with it. And I feel like it's quite an easy way for journalists and some of the candidate supporters to present the leadership election as sort of women at each other's throats arguing about you know Women's things. Women's things. Mm, exactly, yeah. or yeah. not women's yeah. things. And I,
3: I mean, yeah. and I have spoken to people. I, well, I have spoken to men who, who work in politics who sort of joke about how, you know, the trans, that's one they, they stay away from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, oh that's, God, one that's one that's bit, bit scary. And, yeah. I, and I just, um, I mean, I understand it, but I think it, it, is, it is unfair in, in the context of a Labour leadership debate that Keir Starmer is, is slightly able to fudge the controversies of that position and no one seems to mind quite so much. But also on that point, I think um, while we're on trans rights and so on, since I wrote that piece about Rebecca Long-Bailey's position on it, I think it's worth a public service broadcast on the difference between the GRA Mm. and the Equality Act. Since um, on Andrew Marr at the weekend, Rebecca Long-Bailey was asked if she would like to reform the Equality Act of 2010, obviously a Labour law, which was the first law really to recognise being trans as a protected characteristic, but which also contains this sort of long proviso on exceptions to letting trans people access same-sex spaces. And so this is sort of long proviso that under the Equality Act, you need to... For example, if you're running a women's refuge or something, your, your starting point should be treating a vulnerable trans woman as a trans woman, respecting her identified gender. But the, in specific circumstances on a case-by-case basis, if you decide that providing the service to other users of your service is inhibited by letting the trans person also access the services, you can either offer the trans woman a separate service or in, in limited circumstances exclude her. Mm -hmm. And Rebecca Long-Bailey was asked if she wanted to change that law. And she said something. The the transcript is in the article, but she said something like, "Yeah, I want I want self ID. I want you know." And gave an answer arguing for those sort of the widely accepted or sort of the Labour manifesto position and the Liberal Democrat manifesto position of gender recognition act reform. She, you know, made the case for allowing people to self-identify their gender, sort of taking away the legal obstacles. And Andrew Marr didn't notice that she had given an entire answer about a different law and he said again so so do you want to change the Equality Act she said yeah I'm in favour of self ID and that was it and then you know I rang her team to clarify and she isn't in favour of changing those provisions in the Equality Act of 2010 which are quite Which careful. is far more telling isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah because I mean it would have been huge news if she had decided to, to change that you know major yeah. policy that is not something being proposed by literally any politician under the sun as far as I can tell. I would have been huge news and he didn't really seem to to notice. She didn't really know the difference either. I think that GOI reforms have been really, really controversial Mm. but part of it is that people aren't aware of the separate provisions in the Equality Act of 2010 which aren't in line to change under those reforms and those provisions would still stand. (laughs)
2: so we are launching a new reporting series much like our crumbling britain series which uh, reported on how austerity has impacted the public realm and certain communities this one's called britain's lost spaces so it's tracking the decline in public space that we've seen over the past few years as local authorities have had to tr- tr- had to sell off basically buildings and land because they don't have any cash left and also other community institutions and and other places where locals congregate which are disappearing before our eyes so We've got some really interesting stuff. I went to see Mm. the Migration Museum, the UK's only Migration Museum, which has failed to find permanent residence anywhere, which is kind of quite, (laughs) quite apt. So it used to be in a disused fire station in Lambeth and now it's moved to Lewisham's shopping centre because the Lambeth space is being converted into flats. Mm-hmm. George Grills has written a great piece that will be out shortly about how London skyscrapers bargain with our public space. And Ellie Peake, our social media manager, has gone to visit some pubs that are being turned into flats by their sort of pub co-landlords.
4: The worst the worst thing about pubs being turned into flats, sorry to interrupt, is no, not at all. there's a sub-genre of pub conversion that keeps the pub... Like, fascia. Yes. So, like, it will still say, like, the, you know, the pub co-arms. And you're like, brilliant. An old school pub. And then you see the buzzers and you think, that
1: is just so cynical. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those. Arm.
2: There's a lot of those on corners everywhere yeah. in East London. It's actually Awful. really
1: quite sinister. So, interesting. how did the, um? because obviously, yeah, you are our Britain editor. You are the primary author and editor of our Crumbling Britain series. So what's the kind of how did the spaces thing happen?
2: So actually, it was off the back of journalism by another organisation, the very excellent Bureau for Investigative Journalism, which found out last year in a investigation that 12,000 public spaces have been sold off by councils since 2014-2015. And that sort of was brought up some really interesting data about how the lands and the spaces that really should be ours are being sold quietly without us having any power over them but there weren't that many human stories in that reporting so I wanted to try and see how that actually affects people on on a ground level so I came across a community centre in Margate that's been turned into a private school the people protested but it happened anyway and all sorts Um, of other examples like that which you kind of come across and maybe read in local papers, but you never actually sort of link link it into a trend that's definitely happening in Britain. Mm. So when the UN special rapporteur was here to look around and see the impact of austerity, he went to this youth club in South Acton, which is near where I grew up, called the Bolo, on Bolo Bridge Road. And it's um, on this big estate, which was actually used in the credits for um, only fools and horses, even though that's set in Peckham, just because it looks so bleak. And he asked the kids at the youth club, what is the one thing that you you would ask for if you had a government representative in this room and they just said space because they've had their youth club shrunk into a smaller building and now other residents in Acton want that space, that youth club turned into a coffee shop as well so it's an ongoing thing Mm -hmm. Um, so stories like that have really caught my eye Mm-hmm. And everyone has a different example. So Amelia Tate, formerly of this parish, wrote a really good piece about the decline of public toilets and how mm-hmm. some people are spreading round toilet codes in prets and stuff so that everyone can have use of those toilets when they're out,
1: out and about. I have a question, which I guess kind of because in many ways, right, this is a, it's a new series, but it it's sits under the crumbling Britain. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you can't separate local authorities that. do this to make ends meet. How sustainable? Like, like Margate can't sell that space again. Mm. You know how how big of a problem are these places that have sold their their public spaces going to have? You know next year when their social care commitments are still very large.
2: Yeah, it really is sort of like scraping the barrel of what you've got left to make money from. So eventually, the, unless there's a new local government funding model that the government comes up with, I don't know. Maybe in this. New Make It Rain Britain. We'll we'll have something for them, but I highly doubt it because it's not in particularly sexy, and we know that they'd rather give money to the NHS than to sort of social care budget. So it doesn't look likely that anything's going to happen anytime soon to save the situation. So councils are going to go bankrupt.
4: Mm. Something I find slightly insidious at the same time as public space is contracting, Mm. is um, the growth of sort of pseudo-public space that are really private. So, like, not far down Fleet Street from here is Paternoster Square. Also, the entirety of Liverpool One, which uh, the shopping centre, lovely space, spent a lot of time there as a teenager, that replaced a park in Liverpool City Centre with what looks like public space but is actually owned by a private company and the public actually have no legal right of way but we sort of use these spaces as if they're public while not knowing and it's similar to the skyscrapers George Grills is talking about right yeah, like exactly. so much mm-hmm. of the, the highways and the byways are now owned by private corporations who could in theory, not that they're necessarily going to but could tomorrow say no, you you can't walk across here anymore, Yeah, I'm afraid. Wait,
1: wait, wait. So a those new places, enclosure. Those, so I have no wow. notional right to move through Paternoster no, Square?
2: No, those, and those places are expanding. They're called wow. POPs, which is privately owned public spaces. And unlike the public spaces that we access that are run by councils or whatever, the the regulations, as, i.e. The, the rules about what you're allowed to do in those spaces, aren't transparent, so they don't have to give them to you because they're owned by private bodies. So... A homeless person might be able to sleep on one side of the line but not the other, for example.
3: Wow. And the amazing thing is, as well, that you just know in in fifty years' time or less, there'll be some public policy initiative, a sort of public health thing, where we have this terrible loneliness epidemic and an aging population, and like a, an even worse mental health crisis. And one of the initiatives will be to bring in public spaces, and it'll be a Tory initiative, won't it? <laughs> and I, <laughs> and everyone will be thinking, "Gosh, what a great idea!"
1: I am quite enjoying like this, this huge energy of this like. Because obviously we've had, you know, three prolonged periods of Tory government in the 21st century, 20th Mm. century, since the war. But in, you know, the 50s and 60s, right, there was was kind of a consistent through line. In the 80s and 90s, there was, yeah, a consistent... I'm really enjoying this kind of new thing where, like, every five years we get a new Tory prime minister who's like, guys, guys, I've discovered this new thing. Yeah, so with with you know Theresa May was like hey guys I've discovered this new thing it's called um, maybe we should be concerned about life chances and you know like and then we ha- had oh, this new yes. thing where it's just like I- I'm into um, state planning of employment vacancies Is yeah you know, like in, in this immigration bill so I'm really looking forward to you know in six years time when you know Keir Starmer, having gained twenty seats in twenty twenty four, loses to Rishi Sunak, who will be running on a ticket of you know we should have more public space. Like it's, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because mm. um there is this hilarious history of bad, liter- bad political literature and commentary after Labour loses for the fourth time in a row. Of people being like, "Will they ever win again?" And are we going to become like Japan? But I think one of the ways this time feels more like we're becoming like Japan is the LDP has been in power pretty much consistently, but has not had a consistent ideology, right? In the way that what you broadly might describe as Macmillanism dominated conservative thinking in the 50s and 60s and Thatcherism dominated conservative thinking in the 80s and 90s and this is I think the first prolonged phase of conservative thinking where you kind of get this kind of like you know like spin the wheel what yeah. comes out nobody yeah. knows yes. you know
3: close some hospitals and then get a huge election boost by announcing that you're going to build some yeah. Yeah. amazing <laughs> <laughs> just like one step forward one step back yeah. and you keep getting an election victory out of it
1: well don't that <laughs> <That's> cheerful <laughs> note uh, <laughs> you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me stephen bush my colleague anusha kellyan Our political correspondents, Patrick McCoy and Alva Ray, thank you so much for all of your responses to our survey so far. It is on our various social media feeds. Please do keep filling it in. All of your feedback is very useful and very welcome. We're going to have a sort of special powwow when Nick collates them all together, and it will be very helpful to us, so thank you very much. Our music is still levelled by the devil, licensed under Creative Commons. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton.